Thanks, Nicole. <clears throat> Morning, everyone. I'm not going to preach out of John today. Let me read a passage from you out of Acts chapter 20. This is the Apostle Paul's last address to the elders in Ephesus, which is a city in uh, modern-day Turkey that he spent two years ministering to it. This is, this is the last thing he says to them. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I hope you use the Ask Me Anything um, number because I'm going to preach a very misunderstandable sermon this morning. Um, over the last several years, even though I'm a pastor and you're sure this isn't true of me, um, I have found it just difficult to get excited about Christian holidays. Um, you know, Easter and Christmas are the deepest and most meaningful holy days of the Christian year and also my tax seasons. You know what I mean? And so um, when, when Christian faith is also your family business, sometimes it makes it hard. But it's more than just that. Um, uh, one of the things I've noticed is, is that as I've tried to sort of save the holy day from the holiday, that it's become increasingly difficult to do that. And part of the reason for that is because I'm just like everybody else in our culture. Right? In my convictional self, the ideology that I believe is I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that Scripture is his word. I believe that I will raise from the dead with him. I believe, like, I believe all that stuff. And in the emotional operation of my soul, I want more stuff. I want you to do things for me. I don't want to be responsible for the things that need to be done in our world. And... Um, I want to be able to buy whatever I need, whether it should be bought or sold or not. And I'm naturally concerned with what's going on right now and how I feel and I'm experiencing the thing that's going on right now, regardless of how it connects to God. One of the, the things I've noticed about why um, I have trouble getting excited about the holy day part of Christmas and Easter and some of these things is because hol holidays, especially religious holidays, are the worst possible thing for modern worldly people. And Christmas is worse than Easter because it bifurcates the worldly part of us and the holy part of us in this sense. What happens at Christmas in a secular sense? How do we celebrate Christmas? Right? And the answer is we, we get stuff. That was actually spiritually the right answer, Fran. Great job. Right? He's like, we give. It's like, Way to ruin the sermon. Um, <laughs> but like what actually excites a lot of people is that they're going to get stuff. And it better be the right stuff. And if it's not the right stuff, we're going to cry. Or if we're an adult, we're going to ask if there's a gift receipt. <laughs> right? That's the holiday part of it. What's the holy day part of it? It's a repetition. We're going to repeat something that belongs to everybody that isn't going to change at all. So the worldly-hearted person that constantly needs novelty to feel good, that constantly wants to, wants to devour or eat something else, and constantly wants something that's special for us in our own consumption, the, the holy day is worthless for us. 
We're going to hear the same story again, read by somebody who won't read it very excitingly. We're going to light the same candles. We're going to come to the same place. Half of you are going to wear the same Christmas sweater. We're going to do all the same stuff. And even the stuff that's supposed to be special isn't really special anymore. You're going to eat the same food. And frankly, for most of you, the food you eat at Christmas isn't going to be any more special than the food you eat every other day. Have you noticed that Thanksgiving is half ruined that way? Like when I was younger and I'm 170, <laughs> at Thanksgiving time, people, we would make food that we just didn't eat at other times. Like it was truly better than most days. It was, it was a spike. It was special. It wasn't like, oh, we have to eat turkey instead of sushi. Ugh. Right? We better have great pies. Right? I, the family gathering I was at, like we had good food, but most of the interest was in the pies and the alcohol. Because the, the turkey and the stuffing and the, all that stuff is just, it's just my, my main interest food-wise was, will, will the marshmallow to sweet potato ratio be acceptable? <laughs> one to one is my acceptability ratio. <laughs> right? Now, <clears throat> I would like to take you through 15 different dynamics that make us such empty-hearted people coming to the holy day when all we want is the holiday. But I, I want to just look at three. And part of it is because holidays trick us because they're also institutions. And one of the most reckless and difficult parts of our lives right now as a society, as a culture, and as a church, and as people, is we have forgotten what institutions are, how fundamental they are to our humanity and to following the Lord. Most of what we do as human beings are either direct acts towards our, what Jesus calls our neighbor— the, the people we democratically just bump up against because they've been put into our life for what seem like random reasons. You don't get to pick them, right? And the institutions that we become part of that we get to pick a little bit about, but we can't control, right? So the two main institutions God has given us are marriage, that is the immediate family, and the church. And our life is spent allowing ourselves to be spent to build up those institutions, which are filled with people we didn't pick, right? People joke that, like, your friends are your family that you didn't pick, or that you got to pick, right? Your family that you got to pick. No, they're not. No, they're not. You have nothing like the responsibility to your, to your friends that you have your family. Your family are people that you are morally and spiritually bound to, that you don't get to pick, and you don't get to dump. And that is part of God's spiritual formation in your life. Because guess what? what? What's your family like? Is, it, is your family like the holiday or like the holy day? Are they the fun novelty thing that you get something from is always different? Or is it the constant repetition that's going to be the same as you always thought it was? Your family is much more like the holy day. That's why so many people who are so worldly dread spending time with their families, even when their family really isn't that dysfunctional. It's just not exciting. It's not as fun as playing a video game. Or hanging out with friends that will talk about just the stuff you're comfortable with. Or agree with all the things that you believe in. Right? And churches like that too. And what our whole life is meant to be is taking joy in giving to others who are either democratically our immediate neighbors that we don't pick or who God puts outside of our particular choice into the two main institutions we invest ourselves in, the church and the family. You don't get to pick it, and your whole life is about serving them. And in that, Jesus says, there is a death to those worldly desires that are actually destroying you, and a rebirth to life 
to find joy in the things that life is really made of and that are accessible to everybody because it doesn't matter how much money you have. If you realize that's what your life is for, loving your neighbors and loving people through these institutions you didn't pick, everybody has access to that. The poorest people in the world have access to that. Sometimes they're the only people now who still recognize it. Now, one of the reasons why what the apostle says is so important is because whether it's the institution of Christmas, whether it's the institution of our families, or our churches, or whether it's just the empty-heartedness that we're facing, because what this produces in us is not just that we don't live out our faith. What it produces in us is an empty-heartedness. We just aren't excited about anything. I can't tell you how many people I know who they just feel emotionally flat just kind of all the time. That's why they constantly have to be listening to something or constantly playing a game or constantly flipping through their phone and looking at Instagram or looking at something. Like, this is what memes are for, right? Memes are basically like the protoplasm gun that keeps the ghost of our anxiety away. We just keep flipping through it so that we can stay emptily abused enough so we don't actually feel the emptiness. Tee-hee, 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 ha-ha-ha-ha-ha, tee-hee. I don't have to feel how empty my life is and how meaningless it is. Right? And so the Apostle Paul comes in and he says something that none of the gospel writers record in the gospels. But that Jesus said enough that it was just kind of common knowledge. One of Jesus' things. Remember what the Lord Jesus said? He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it turns out that especially if you live in a culture that becomes affluent— the more affluent the culture becomes, the more performative the culture becomes, the more bureaucratized the culture becomes, the more secular, the more this-worldly a culture becomes, the more, to use Jesus' word in John, worldly a culture becomes, the more absolutely necessary it is not just to save your soul, but to save your heart and to save your feelings that you absolutely die and rise to the truth that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Right? How many of us believe Jesus is the truth, cognitively, but our, our life, we just don't seem to believe he's the way? This is the way of Jesus. That in everything that we do, and how we use our time, and who we relate to, and what we choose to support, and how we're a part of it, and how we participate, and what we won't give up on, and what we're loyal to, that it's obvious to everybody that we believe it is more blessed, more enviable, more beautiful, more exciting, more interesting, more worth everything to give than it could ever be to receive. Right. Now, one way you can think about this is that by giving, by realizing that giving is the heart of our life, that realizing that it is more blessed to give than to receive, we can, res we can reverse three of the key poisons that are making us empty-hearted people. We could commit ourselves to create and redeem instead of consume. We could choose to participate rather than perform. And we could choose to embrace our responsibility to others and the, the things that we participate in that we don't pick rather than avoiding them. Right? Okay, three quick parts and then seven points of application. The first is, is that 
if we want to really embrace that it is more blessed to give than receive, we have to commit our hearts and our souls to create as a bigger part of who we are than consume. Much bigger. That what our life is about is creating something, not consuming something. Right? If I come home from work and I can go do one of my hobbies, or I can listen to one of my kids talk to me, or do something they're interested in. When I'm in my, like, worldly frame, emotionally, I want to go through the thing that I can consume. Right? But when I realize the purpose of my life as a man who's married with children is that my strength in life is exploited, that is dug out, it's mined out, to be used for my family and for my children. That's what my life is for. I am, because my life is expiring, right? One of the things to remember about working for Jesus is all he asks you to burn to death is what's expiring anyway. It's like me telling you, you better eat that pear because it's already ripe. Because in two days, the flies are going to eat it and it's going to be garbage. You're going to die, right? You're going to age and you're going to die, and you can't take your money with you, and you can't keep your health, and you can't stay young and sexy, and you can't do any of that stuff. You have a life that's expiring. To not use that life for something meaningful is a travesty. Jesus is asking you to take your expiring life that is dissipating and that has like a expiration date on it, and to use it, right? Lettuce doesn't keep, right? We're like the grass of the field that's alive one day and cast into the fire tomorrow. It's, it's, it's dissipating every moment. And so when Jesus says to serve him and to work to be his steward, to do these things that are good, to create, to redeem, to act, you're doing it with life that you can't keep. You can't bank any of this. You're going to die. So live. One of the things that I find so strange in the culture is that the more people believe this is the only life they have, the less they live. The more they hide and retract from relationships and don't make big commitments and are afraid to make choices. You would think they would, you'd think they'd be like the old secular romantics that went out and made love and joined wars in the 1800s. Who like wanted to at least drink from the fountain of life. Even if it wasn't real life. But we've found a way to both believe it's only the here and now and do nothing that means anything to anybody. Right? But on the other side, Jesus isn't trying to work your soul to death. Right? He instituted the Sabbath. He tells you you have to rest. Right? And so Jesus creates this where we, where we work with our life to do what's good, the life that's already expiring, so that he can give us a new and everlasting life. And in doing so, he doesn't work our souls out of us. The work he calls us to do is with the bodies that will expire, but not in ways that are dishonoring to our bodies or our souls. He's like, no, I'm not a slave driver. I want you to rest. I want to care for you. I just don't want you to waste your life in idleness and idolatry and covetousness and call it something else. Right? Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, see the, the contrast? I didn't covet. I didn't spend my time wishing I could consume more, wishing I could consume what you have, wishing that I could devour more and more and more. I didn't come to you. I mean, he was speaking every day in the lecture hall of for two years. Like, very educated, 
traveling speakers that could fill a lecture hall in the ancient world were very well-paid men. They were virtually all men, right? And yet, when he was with them, he said, I worked with these hands, meaning he was a literary man, right? He had, he had what would be now a PhD in Hebrew literature. And do you know what he did? He sewed canvas tents when he wasn't preaching. The people used in like marketplaces and agoras. And he did that to make enough money to pay for his needs and the needs of his traveling companions, not because they didn't deserve to be paid by the church. In 1 Corinthians 9 and other places, he says workers are worth their keep. You, you should pay your minister if you can, but he doesn't let them. Why? Because he's so interested in teaching them this truth. We shouldn't be idle, friends. We should work. We should create. We should make something that is of use to others. We should help people. With, with our, the work of our hands, with the strength that we have, we should seek to have an abundance so that we can be in a position to bless those who are weak. And then we should. I mean, I, sometimes I wonder if Christmas would be more exciting if we gave to the people Jesus actually told us to give to instead of our kids. Did you ever think about that? Like, what if we did, what if we were like, you know, the people Jesus told us to give to are the weak and the poor. Let's do that, right? I'm not saying you can't get your kids presents. I am saying the presents you get your kids probably aren't helping them, right? Okay, I need to keep moving. When we don't recognize that it's more blessed to give than receive— that it's more blessed to create and to give than to consume, it produces these, at least these, it produces a lot more bad effects, but I'm just limiting myself to these three. A bad secularism, that is, we start, we, we, we live in vainglory, we live in pride, we live in the idolatry of give me more and my things are great and I don't have to work hard, I don't have to become competent at anything, instead of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy isn't right belief. Ortho is right, doxa is glory, not truth. Orthodoxy is to glorify and to worship and adore the right things. Right? And to know that it's more blessed to give than to receive orders our heart to worship the right things rather than worship the consuming things ourselves. The second is that when we don't understand it, it's more blessed to give than to receive, it commercializes things that are not supposed to be bought and sold. Right? We have to exist together in commercial relationships. They keep us—they they keep us—they um, give us the accountability to make sure we're really offering somebody something of value so that they're willing to pay the price for it. Like commerce is good, but there's some stuff that's just not supposed to be bought and sold right? Like children, or sexuality, or that sort of thing. And so by recognizing what matters, what we should give to, and giving with a sense of honor in our hearts and minds towards it, we, we don't allow the commercialization of what should not be in the realm of commerce. And one of the most disgusting things about our culture is that we are, while protesting that we don't like capitalism— dragging the things that should least be bought and sold into markets, mainly through social medias and things like that. And it's often the very people who most protest the market that are trying to market what that which should never be bought and sold. And then third is it bureaucratizes. That is, it puts in the hands of people who are specialized, and therefore it's their responsibility, not ours, to do the thing. Right? But— just like commercialization, there are some things that are not supposed to be other people's responsibilities, even if other people could do them better, right? For example, what is a Democrat small d? Is it somebody who believes that the common man or woman understands what should be done by the government better than anybody else? Better than experts and statesmen? 
Is it true that like Jesse will vote better than Nikki Haley herself? No. It's the belief that governing ourselves is something we just have to do ourselves, even if we do it badly. It's kind of like writing your own love letters or wiping your own nose, G.K. Chesterton said in the book Orthodoxy, right? I might be able to pay a nurse to wipe my nose a little better than I can wipe my own, but I shouldn't. And it turns out that, think about, what do you think Jesus would say about loving, loving our neighbor, helping the poor, supporting the weak? Is that something we should make somebody else's responsibility? Or is it the sort of thing like mothering a child that shouldn't be outsourced? Does that make sense? And you see, part of the issue is, is that Christians have allowed in many ways to make helping people who are hurting, helping people who are weak, helping people who are in need, helping people who need healing, we've allowed that to be outsourced to people who will be well paid to do it. And if you run the math, it's bankrupting our whole society. Chesterton said in one of his essays on the family, he said, nothing is as cheap as a mother and nothing so integral, meaning what mothers do is like one of the most important things that there could possibly be, but you could never afford to pay them for it. And that's one of the most fundamental paradoxes of the society, which is precisely why mothering and caring for people can't be commercialized. Because you can't pay enough for love. If you do, you will literally bankrupt your whole society and pass a million dollars of debt to your kids because you weren't willing to care about your neighbor or your family or even your friends. And all these things come home to roost in the real realities of the consequences of how we actually act in the world. Okay. But if we treat things as sacred rather than secular, we relate God to the present age, we'll do the thing to please God. So that when you give, you'll do it to please God. And when you do it to please God, and you actually care about God, you'll be happy to give. Because it's a blessing to be in the position to give. It means you're more blessed than the person even that receives. And that's been done by God. If you really believe that your intelligence and your capacity and the family you were born to do is as much from, is from God, and all that hard work you did still was within the realm of grace. And it was your responsibility. And you should be proud of it, small p in terms of like building something with good craftsmanship, but not proud like, I did this. Right? And it'll be filled with honor. Like, you'll look at the person who you want to give to, and instead of thinking about the exchange, and are you getting a good deal? And am I getting what I want? You'll think about the honor inherent in that other person, and you'll give to the honor in that person that shouldn't be commercialized. And here's the thing. You'll feel better about it. You'll like it more. When those other people around you in your life that you're trying to separate yourself from so that you can have more privacy, when you realize they're not there to annoy you, but the divine image bearer is there for you to love, you'll feel different about them over time, over time. But you'll feel different about them. You won't feel like every time you have to relate to another person, it's an imposition. You'll begin to see that everyone is an opportunity, even the annoying people, even, even your enemies. And then service is the opposite of bureaucratization, right? Make it somebody else's job, somebody who has more qualifications than me. No, no, let's us do it. 
Let's us cooperate together in the small institutions of subsidiary, the family and the church. Let us build this institution together and do the things that we were called to do and meant to do. Let us do it. Let's us take responsibility. Let's see it as our job. And let's see that that's what our life is really for and about. Not escaping those things so I can play more golf or go fishing more or do more things unto myself, but so that I can actually do something where other people are cared for so the bureaucratization is as small as possible. Surely in helping others, at times we will need people with expertise. If I'm helping somebody who's weak because they have cancer, I'm not going to say enlisting an oncologist is spiritual bureaucratization. But you see, when we do what we're called to do, when we love people, then the bureaucracy is only needed for the specialized actions. And then we can afford it. Those people won't be overwhelmed and overrun. And we can actually work as a people, right? All right, that's only the first point, and we're going to not be here that much longer. So <laughs> the second thing is reject making a name for yourself and make a name for God. Now, God already has a name, but a treasonous world has sought to snuff it out in its worldliness, in its secularity, and it's focusing on this age and not the one who is the God of the ages. And our job, what we're called to do, is to give God glory. To give, the only thing we can give God is allegiance, is loyalty, is appropriate recognition, is thanks. And so therefore what we should be doing is living to make a name for God, not for ourselves. Friends, we live in a world that is so full of people seeking to make a name for themselves so that they can monetize it. It's so full. It's so full of that. In fact, you can see this in this, this um, place where Jesus teaches about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, he says beware, beware of practicing righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. When therefore you give alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they've had their reward in full. But when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your alms may be in secret, and that your Father who is in secret may repay you. What Jesus says is, he says, listen, when you, when you actually do give, when you realize it's more blessed to receive, and you take the step of giving, the next temptation is to desire recognition for doing the giving. And he said, you, you got to kill it. Be so secretive about the good that you do that it's like your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Don't be like the hypocrites who like, what they really want is to be recognized. They're telling themselves they're still doing it for the right reason, that this is just an addition, but over time it poisons it. And the way you do it and how you do it and how much time you spend doing it all begins to change to serve the recognition rather than the action itself. You can see this in so many ways in our culture, but I want you to notice here that when this, these gifts are being given, I want you to see two things in this verse. One is Jesus is saying, do practice righteousness. Righteousness is something you can do. There are objective actions of obedience and good that you can do, and those acts are righteous. It doesn't make you righteous before God that you don't need Jesus. But the acts are themselves inherently good. When they are done in justice, they are righteousness, and you and I should choose to practice them. Right? But he also says, when you do it in the synagogue and in the streets, the idea here is somebody going to the synagogue and he's trying to get, he, he, just, just giving in front of everybody in the synagogue so everybody in the synagogue knows he's doing it isn't enough. He wants everybody to see him go, even going to the synagogue. The people who don't go to church need to know too, right? Hey, I'm bringing all this. I'm bringing all this. 
We're going to give this to the poor at the church. I'm carrying it with me right now because I'm going to give it. When I go to church, we're going to give this. Right? And then they go and they give it to the guy. So notice one thing. They are participating in an institution to build it up. But you notice what they're doing? They're using the institution to build their own name rather than building up the institution as a place where people are reformed and transformed. And that's what we are doing and have been doing for the last 50 or 60 years, but especially the last 10 or 15 years in our society, is instead of seeing our institutions, especially the God-given fundamental institutions of the family and the church, as places that we serve anonymously in which we are formed, transformed, and reformed, we increasingly see them as things that we can stand on to perform, and they serve us. One of the, one of the places this, this was seen most drastically was, was the political parties in America. It used to be that the political parties, they formed their candidates, they controlled who was going to be the candidate, and then they put forward who they wanted to put forward. So whoever the Democrats put forward was a Democrat. And whoever the Republicans put forward, whatever else they were, they were a Republican. But you can see in the last several elections, anybody who wants to run just runs. And they stand on the political party, they do whatever they want. Whether it was Bernie Sanders for the Democrats, whether it was Donald Trump for the Republicans. These are, these are institutions that I can stand on and perform. They're not things that form me, right? And so you can come into the church and you can want recognition. You look, where can I teach? And can I do this? And can I be important? And how can I? Or you can think about that in your family, that your family should actually be aggrandizing you somehow. But that's not it. We are the anonymous supporters of the thing that is worth building. And the thing that is most anonymous is when we, we do it through an institution in which we become anonymous, but the institution stands for the thing we wish to promote. And you see, the part of the purpose of the church, one of its most fundamental purposes when it's not corrupt, is that we, we give and participate and serve in the local church so then all of our work becomes anonymous. And through the church, the name of Jesus is glorified. All that could be our popularity gets transferred to Jesus and to the community that we're a part of. That is a fundamental reality. One of the things that we've seen in the last 80 years in charitable giving is that we have become exponentially richer, right? We have so much more money. And giving in America has gone up like five times. But it's because we've become seven times richer, not because we give any more. We have... 500% more luxuries, and we haven't increased the amount we give to others by 1% of total GDP. It's still 2% of GDP is what we get across the board. Obviously, not everybody gives the same, right? But here's the huge reversal. The huge reversal is, is that when I was a kid, it was still considered virtuous to not tell people that you are doing good things. You didn't advertise it. You just did it. And you, you assumed everybody else did too. And that was the cultural assumption that was taught to everybody, including our children. We do good things without expecting recognition. We all do them. We all participate. We all are creators. We all are reformers. We're all actors in this thing that we're doing together. There are some things like community, like these institutions that must not be commercialized. And they are not performative. They're a place where we are shaped, formed, and transformed. And that has completely changed. And the church is as in danger as anywhere else of being a performative community, right? Like, what's the difference between a social media person and somebody who's gutting a deer? And the answer is, I'm not sure. They're both sucking the value out of something. <laughs> They're both gutting something. What happens when people perform at the expense of institutions is that they are gutting the real value of that institution. Right? 
And usually they don't do as good a job as a deer hunter of actually redeeming what can be redeemed. This came home to me pretty seriously in the last few months. I don't have a lot of time here, but I'm going to tell you a quick story and skip half my sermon. Um, because I, I need to make the announcement that's built into this. So uh, several months ago, I went to this, like, um, just a, like, it was like a revival service at another, another church in town. Um, it was a, it's a mostly African-American and Caribbean church. And I just went to worship, because like when I'm here, I'm thinking about a lot of stuff, and I like to do that sometimes. So I went to go see those folks and to worship. And while I was there, they were having like this deliverance and revival meeting. And I'm just sitting in the back, and dang it, if the pastor didn't go like, that's Nick Gibson! And he just started saying stuff about us and our church and how much we'd supported them and how big a difference it had made and how, like, just talking, I'm just going on about me. And I was just like, this is not what I came here. So then I thought it was over. And the prophetic lady who had come from the Caribbean called me up on stage. And I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting, right? She had me put out my hands and she slapped my hands like this. And she said, these hands are going to count money. And I was like, awesome. Yeah, that's what I was hoping to hear. It's great. And she's like, and, 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 I think, I think there's going to be an airplane. I think there's going to be an airplane. And I was like, yep, that's what I've been praying for. That's, <laughs> that's the hope of my life is that I would count money and that I would get an airplane. You know, but at the time I was working with a friend um, we were trying to start a media company. And of course, media companies can become exponentially profitable. I was like, well, God, if you want to do it, you certainly could. And that would be very interesting. It would also make my name big right? And I was also like working with some publishing stuff. And, um, and it came about that one of the people we were working with, a media company, had a publishing deal that could be relatively lucrative and blah, blah, blah. But then she just decided to just be a mom instead of write the book. And we were like, okay. And ultimately the whole media thing kind of came apart. We just kept doing the podcast, but that's it. And I was like, well, whatever, who cares, right? Maybe I'm not going to have a plane, you know? And then, um, uh, not too long after that, we, um, you know, we, we work with all kinds of churches, do all kinds of stuff. And one of the churches that Mike and I had done some consulting with and that High Point had supplied preachers for, um, like, decided to close their doors. Like, the stuff we did, they weren't able to turn it around. And they were like, we need it. We're going to actually give our church away that's worth a couple million dollars. And um, during the leaders retreat a couple of months ago, Mike and Adam and I did a pitch for why you might want to give it to High Point. Here's what we would do if you gave it to us. And they were looking at six, six or so other ministries in the city. And last Sunday, when I was sick at home, I got this call from Ashley. And she said, we voted to give High Point our church. It's the first $2 million gift I've ever received to our, for a church in my ministry. And the interesting thing is, is that the church where that lady prophesied that, which is still weird, okay, um, they're losing their building. And one of my commitments is whenever we have stewardship over a building, that we do ministry in there, but we want to use the building as close to 100% of the time as we can. And so I've been, I've been looking for a church that that church could meet in. And so all of a sudden, this, these people gave a church to us, which we haven't accepted, by the way. I'll get into the process in just a second. But they offered to give us their church, which is a couple minutes from the house of the pastoral couple that was losing their building, that I was at their worship service, that I said, I'll do everything I can to make sure you guys have a place to worship. Who can't afford to buy a building in Madison? There's no way they can afford to buy a building. And yet, they can fit in this building, and it's a couple minutes from their house. Right? Maybe I am going to count money. I don't know. Right? But you, do you notice the difference? It's not my money. 
About the same time, about, ten, about eight days before that, the company that was going to publish this woman's book had offered to publish mine. They were really interested in it. They said it was, the, it was maybe the best, one of the very best self-published books they'd ever seen. They were excited about it. They were like, we might want to publish this, which would mean tens of thousands of dollars for me and nice vacations for my family. And I was excited about that. And it was happening when these like, church giveaway things were happening at the same time. And then we had the final meeting with them, when, and I sat down with the, the person who was representing me. Um, and they said, you know, here's the thing. We've decided not to publish the book. And here's why. We have a fairly conservative audience. And um, when we looked at, like, your public stuff, you're just—you don't appear to be, like, respectful enough of a person. We're afraid you're going to offend the people who buy stuff from us. And she said, she said for example, there, we watched one of your sermons, and in it, you blew your nose— And you went and you put it in a worship leader's guitar. <laughs> and we just know that the, that kind of like potty humor is not something our readers will appreciate. <laughs> and my response to that was, darling, you have made a fantastic decision. Because if that would truly offend people who buy from you, yeah, you do not want me <laughs> in your publishing family, okay? We're still in a conversation with another church on the east side called Crossroads Church that it seems to be going really well that they would want to relaunch a ministry with us. That would be another church on the east side that we would enter into it's millions of dollars of assets, of buildings that God would have entrusted to us through these other saints that I will have to lead as long as I'm the senior pastor. And I'm not looking forward to that. Like, I'm really excited about it and sort of terrified at the responsibility of having that much stewardship to build these institutions, to grow the Church of Christ that will immediately forget me when I'm gone, which will not make my name great. Right? And I felt like it was a, a reminder that the Lord was like, look, Nick, I could make your name great if I wanted to. I could take that little Italian shtick thing you've got going and we could, I could blow, I could blow it up. I'm perfectly capable of doing that. And so I'm going to bring you right to the cusp of that and then not do it so you understand that I definitely could. Um, and then at the same time, so you can't miss this, I'm going to dump in your lap um, the kind of thing you don't have the capacity to lead. Because I'm terrible at raising money and building buildings and that kind of stuff, right? I'm going to drop this in your lap and I'm going to embarrass you into building the institution that bears Jesus' name so that your name would be small and Jesus would be better or greater in the city. And that's what you're going to do for the, the rest of the career you've got left, probably, you know? Which was, on one level, to the holiday side of my heart, like a death, you know? But to the holy day side of it, it was like, yeah, we're going to do something. We're going to at least try something, right? Now, I don't want to get in trouble with the people who are in charge of details. And there are many of them. Monono Oaks has offered to give us their building. We have a due process thing. We need to find out how much it costs, what it's going to take, what kind of renovations are necessary, all, all that kind of stuff. And, we're, and, you'll, and we won't receive the church without a congregational vote, which will happen early next year. Okay, so you'll have a chance to say all you feel like you need to say about it. But— whether or not we receive it, it's still a really interesting turn of events. And I think illustrative of the kind of life God is saying, that's what I called you to do. 
Nothing will make your name not great like getting married and having children. Nothing will make your name great by like doing quiet hospitality in your home. Nothing will not make your name great like just anonymously serving in your local church in ways that you'll never even get thanked for. Right? None of that, nothing will not make your name great like adoring God in worship and praying for and with others. None of that's going to make your name great. None of that is going to make you important. None of that's going to make you receive all kinds of things. But if you believe, it's more blessed to give than receive. If you believe that we should choose anonymity because of the blessing that it actually provides and trust our reward to God. And if you believe that yeast works through the, the whole dough when you can't even really see what it's doing, you just keep kneading until it's through the whole bread and the whole thing rises, then you'll be ready to recognize that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you'll be ready to die the death that's necessary to all the things that make us empty-hearted people that can't even be happy with holidays and make us the kind of people who can so embrace the real life and way of Jesus that's before us that we would find joy in doing simple, repetitive tasks that will make nothing of our name, but for which God will, will reward us and that will make us lovers of our neighbor and actually filled with the joy of God. My friends, it is more blessed to give than to receive. As Jesus said in another place, do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you'd help us to believe and trust you in such a way as to learn to be people who give. Who give worship, who give prayer, who give service, who give a willingness to love our enemies and to forgive others who give obedience, who give witness, who give money, who seek to build up the institution that bears your name and to make it great and beautiful so that you would be recognized for who you are and help us to recognize the process that it takes. One that you, like yeast working into a dough, you can't really see it happening. You can just knead the dough knowing that the yeast does, it work, does its work. We believe that your gospel— and your work, Holy Spirit, and your providential choices, Father God, will so lead our laborers to produce what you will for them to produce and that they will be good and they will bear fruit. They will be mixed with weeds, but in the end, you will gather wheat into your barn. Help us to be that way. Help us to embrace it. And Father, we pray that it wouldn't just produce love, that it would produce joy and hope and peace and patience and all that flows from really walking with your spirit rather than the world, in Jesus' name.